Now hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and it's good to be with you this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we can get into our sermon this morning. Father God, we humbly come before you this morning, and we ask for your word to find a home in our heart. We ask that every heart in this room would have a response similar to the response 
That's here recorded for us in Acts chapter two. We declare that you are the Lord and the Christ, that we can know this for certain. We're thankful that you beat death, hell, and the grave, and that you promise the gift of the Holy Spirit to everyone who confesses that and turns from their sin. Lord God, I ask that you would think through my mind this morning and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. Father, right now we pray for those who are suffering, those who are sick in our own church, and we ask for each and every one of them that you would heal them through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we believe that you are a God that continues to heal. We've celebrated many of those healings in 2023, and we ask that you would continue to do that in 2024. Would your name be glorified, and would your spirit be present here? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a healthy practice for us at the beginning of a new year is to look back over the past year and then look forward. Uh, we look back over this past year at what God has done so that we can rejoice in God and we can glorify him for his works among us. Now, this is especially important for us in light of the blessings that we have experienced as a church in 2023. This Really, by all metrics, this has been the best year ever for our church, and so we are really thankful to God for that. Today also marks the 12-year anniversary of our first public worship gathering. So what I want to do this morning is take a little bit of time to share a bit of uh, my story and our origin story as a church. Um, many, of, many of you have just joined us in the past year and a half, and so you probably have never heard this, so I'm going to go ahead and give that to you today. I grew up in a Christian home. I loved God from, I mean, from the womb, I guess. I don't remember any time that I didn't love God. I went to church camp, went to church pretty much any time the doors were open, and things were going pretty well. But sometime in junior high, through a lot of circumstances that I won't go into too much detail about here, my parents stopped going to church, and I slowly began to worship the false gods of pretty girls and sports. Um, what, do I, what does it mean by that? Did I bow down to them and worship? No, it means I looked to them for my identity, for my worth, for my significance, for my happiness. It wasn't until late until my senior year of high school that God gripped my heart and drew me back into a relationship with him and his church. My family began to attend a new church on a weekly basis, and God gave me an immense hunger for himself. I, for the first time in my life, I really started reading the Bible. I was uh, volunteering at church in the youth department and any place that they would let me volunteer. And I began to tell anyone who would listen to me about Jesus and what Jesus had done for me. To make a long story short, over the next few years, I began to feel a calling from God to go into full-time ministry. I began to preach in the youth ministry. I came on as a director of operations, the same role that Scott's got here, which evolved into a junior high youth pastor role. And then eventually I was offered a youth pastor position at another church in the Quad Cities. I was a youth pastor there for seven years. I met many of the people here at this church there. And we saw God do some pretty remarkable things. God grew a group of seven kids, five of which were my cousins, uh, into one of the largest uh, youth ministries in the Midwest. We saw hundreds of kids get baptized. Uh, and one night, I remember it was a pretty crazy night, we, saw, we baptized 93 teenagers. Uh, many teens and young adults met Jesus through our youth ministry. I was at a wrestling meet this past week and a guy from out of town came up to me and told me that he came to Christ at our youth ministry and he's in ministry now. 
Uh, he's doing ministry in Hawaii, and I am not. So, uh, well, then in 2009, I experienced the confluence of three things that brought about a great change in my life. First, I read a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, this book was like a gateway drug for me into gospel-centered reformed theology and set me on fire for the glory of God and the sovereignty of God in salvation. But it also began to put me at odds with the church where I was serving. Um, second, I discovered the Acts 29 church planting network and a group of men who preach the Bible expositionally. That means they go verse by verse through books of the Bible, applying it to the current issues of the day and to our human experience in a way that I found made the scriptures uh, really come alive. Nearly every preacher I've ever met says that they preach the word. We just preach the word at this church. Uh, but most of the time in our culture today, preachers end up preaching their own opinions with a few Bible verses sprinkled in for good measure. These Acts 29 preachers preached long, exegetical sermons that were, and which I like, they went against everything the culture said to do, right? The culture said, we, we need short sermons, we don't want liturgical gatherings, and they said, no, we're going back to church history, and they did it back in church history, they preached long, exegetical sermons, and it worked, let's try that again. They had liturgical gatherings in the past, let's try that again, and by God's grace, um, it, it does work, right? They're preaching these sermons, they're culturally informed, and they're gospel-centered, and for the first time, I really felt like I was um, sinking my teeth into a T-bone steak rather than just some candy-coated sermons that I'd had before. This was really good for my soul. Third, because of these first two events, I began to see some glaring weaknesses in my own youth ministry in the church where I was serving. We were not doing a good job at making disciples, which I come to, came to find out was the number one responsibility of a church. It was to make disciples. It was not to make converts. Now, we were pretty good at the time of gaining a crowd and entertaining people with catchy sermon series and creative illustrations and great music. If you want some funny stories, ask anybody who knew me at this time. I'm ashamed of the stuff that I did on stage at this time. Only kind of ashamed, actually. Some of it was pretty funny. I look back and can laugh at now. But the church, I realized, wasn't meant to be a place for religious entertainment. It's meant to form souls into the character of Christ and then send them back out on mission to the world. So in my angst, I began to toss around the idea of planting a new church in the Quad Cities. Actually, people were coming to me and saying, hey, you should plant a church in the Quad Cities. You should plant a church. I wanted, and then I said, I started thinking about it, started praying about it, and I, I said, you know, I really do want to plant a church that would be serious about God and serious about the preaching of the word and serious about making disciples for the glory of God. I shared this new desire with my family, and, and they were kind of cautiously encouraging. I then shared it with my good friend, Kevin Ryan, who I'm sure is here today, and he was behind me as well. So that week, I decided, all right, I'm going to meet with the senior pastor. I'm going to tell him this vision and see what happens. And at first, he was kind of optimistic and encouraging. But then, lo and behold, I was fired a week later. Well, this knocked many of the, this is kind of common, by the way, uh, in the church world, unfortunately. Not every church has a passion for planting churches. Many of them have a desire for growing their own footprint a little bit more than planting churches. 
Well, this knocked my world into a tailspin. I was 30 years old and felt called to plant a church, but was totally unprepared for it. The idea itself was only a few weeks old, and now here we are thrown out into the deep end. We had no name. We had no plan. We had no real vision. We had no money. And we had like two adults, okay? (laughs) On top of all of that, my wife, Amanda, was pregnant with our second child. And now I was out of a job with no severance and no health care. What were we going to do? Well, of course, we did the most logical thing you can do, which is just move ahead and plant the church anyways. Uh, And six days later... Oh, gosh. It takes more time than six days to plant a church, just so you know. But six days later, on a Wednesday night, we decided to just do it. Let's just do it. We started Sacred City Church, and we had 150 people show up. Now, I say people because I get, it was 99% teenagers and a few college kids, but that's how Sacred City got started. Um, but I knew I... I had seen the dangers. I had came to faith in non-denominational churches that didn't have any outside accountability where the pastor could really do what he wanted to do, make decisions how he wanted to make decisions. And I knew that I wanted accountability and I wanted men over me to hold me accountable and to help me walk in the way that I'm supposed to walk. And so I signed up for what was called an Acts 29 boot camp. Um, Acts 29 was this network of churches that planted other churches And they hosted these boot camps where men would come in and they would be assessed and they could become a part of the Acts 29 network. This um, assessment conference was a month after we planted Sacred City Church. Now, this is funny. I always tell this story because it just, God has an amazing sense of humor and his providence knows no bounds. And Amanda and I, we go down to Louisville for this conference and in one sense, we'd had kind of some success in ministry, and so maybe we were a little cocky. But the other, in the other sense, we were really nervous because we didn't know what the heck we were doing. And, you know, we were young pups, right? And so we're, we're showing up to this conference, and we're sitting in a rental car, and we're looking at all the people that, that are coming into this conference. And this guy comes, this guy walks in, and he's in kind of like all black, like looks like he's in biker, like a biker outfit, like biker clothes, like Harley clothes. He's got necklaces and bracelets and an earring, and his hair's kind of poofed up. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like, this guy rolled straight out of an 80s movie. I was like, what? And we're, I was kind of joking, you know, and then, and then we, we, we go into the conference, and they, they, they give everybody lanyards, and they have two colored lanyards that they give you. Either you are a church planter, you're already a part of the network, and I think you got maybe a black lanyard, and then we, as those who are going to be assessed, got a white lanyard. Well, we go in, we heard the first session, we're nervous and excited, and then we kind of go downstairs for this meet and greet time, and we go down there, and we're, we're, you know, you're in there, you're scoping everybody out, and you're looking at white lanyards and black lanyards, and this, this, you know, this 80s superstar here has got the same color lanyard as me, you know, we're, we're both rocking this eight, and he comes up to me, this black lanyard, he, hey, how's, you know, how's it going, what's your name, and I tell him my name, tell me your story, where, where are you coming from, and, and I just, I give him the, I give him the Justin Dean version, which is 100% unfiltered. Here's what happened, man. God called me to plant a church. I got fired. You know, it's bogus, all this kind of stuff. I'm just giving him unfiltered. 
just let him, just pouring out my heart, let him know. And then, yeah, we're here to plant this church, but we already started it three weeks ago. And he's like, well, how was the, like the, all the theological questionnaire? I was like, well, I didn't really have time for that. I just kind of blew through it. You know, I'm just like pouring it out. And then uh, they, we sit down and, and they go, would all the assessors please stand up? This guy stands up and I'm looking at his lanyard like, what happened? And he looked at me and said, Justin, thanks for your candid responses. I'll be your assessor this weekend. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, Lord. Well, you got it out of me one way or the other. Now, what's interesting is this assessment process ended up being one of the most sanctifying experiences of my entire life. We sat around a table for around three hours with three godly seasoned Acts 29 church planters. They had already looked, they'd watched a bunch of my sermons and they had read all my, the reports that I'd filled out and the, the tests that I had taken. And, um, and they pretty much knew all about me. And in their words, after three hours, they told me, Justin, your entrepreneurial and leadership scores are really high, but we're concerned about your heart. Now, these men were more concerned about the state of my soul than they were about the kinds of numbers that I could bring into the network. Now, there's many networks around the world that help church planners. And usually you call them, and if you sign their doctrinal statement and you commit to giving some money, and, and, and you're pretty good at, at gaining a crowd, they're gonna be like, yes, we want this guy. We want him on our team. Well, Acts 29 was different at the time. And they were willing to look at me and say, no, don't plant the church. Not yet. They said, we recommend that you become a church planter resident at another Acts 29 church for a couple years to get training and some discipleship and then see if God's calling you to plant the church. Well, now you should see the problem that we had. We had already planted the church and we were about to let down the 150 people that we had. And I don't like to let people down. Um, they recommended, they knew it was gonna be a difficult decision, but they recommended for the state of our souls and the good of the future of Sacred City Church that we actually choose to close the church down and complete a church planting residence training program with another Acts 29 church so that we could, for the first time, be under biblically qualified elders that could shepherd us. Well, it's not an overstatement for me to say that this was one of the most difficult decisions of my life. At first, we, we told them right away, no way. Like, I don't know about this network, but I'm not letting the 150 people down, many of which had came to faith under our ministry. I'm like, I'm not letting them down. I'm not leaving them without a pastor for two years. There's no way I, I can do that. But then after much prayer and deliberation, we didn't give them an answer there. We came home and we had to announce, we had to, you know, everybody's, how, I'm on the plane, my phone's blowing up. How was the assessment? How was the assessment? And I'm like, I'm not answering. Um, and we get home and, and man and I pray about it and we decided like this, this is the best decision. These men are, they do have our best interest in mind and the best interest of the church and so we need to humble ourselves and take the opinion and the advice of these godly seasoned pastors. And so that next week we showed up on a Wednesday night and we told everyone, hey guys, thanks for following us these past five weeks, but we're closing the church down and we're probably gonna move away. And I was hoping they were gonna invite me to some really cool city 
And we're going to go. I was like, all right, at least if we're going somewhere, bring me to New York City. Bring me somewhere. Bring me somewhere I haven't been, somewhere cool. And they're like, hey, listen, we want you to come to Omaha, Nebraska. And I was like, that city next to those corn bins on the interstate? The only time I'd ever seen Omaha was on my way to Denver. I'm like, Omaha? And lo and behold, the 80s rock star, he was gonna, we're going to go to his church, right? And I, we go to his church the first time, and it's, full, it's completely different than anything I'm a part of, I've ever been a part of. Like, I grew up with an athletic background, and everybody there is just artsy, and they're into all kinds of stuff. And I'm just like, what are you doing, God? The first night we were there, we were at a hotel, and somebody smashed in our back windshield and got in, and, and I'm like, if, if we weren't the type of people that were like licking our fingers to test and see if God's in this, we would have said, Omaha ain't the place. But we were like, nope, we feel like God has called us here. And so we committed, and we ended up moving to Omaha a, really a, a month after Amanda gave birth to Zoe. Um, our time in Omaha was incredibly difficult. We lived in a small third floor apartment with two kids. We burned through all of our life savings as I was only working part-time at Whole Foods while I completed my residency. And we were adjusting to parenting two children in a new city without friends and family, really for the first time in our life. It was, it was really hard. But at the same time, Amanda and I both felt God's nearness. We knew that this was what God had called us to do. This was the first time in my life that I had Christian uh, elders who I could look up to and who were taking an active role in my own discipleship. It was the first time in a decade that I had been out of leadership in a church. I had been preaching week after week after week, sometimes multiple times a week for over a decade. And this time of freedom out from under that, my soul thrived. We even had uh, several people that are still in our church moved to Omaha with us and complete residencies or just want to be with us there and learn what we were learning to come and help us plant Sacred City if God had uh, led us to do that. Well, since I had all this free time when I was there, um, I poured myself into the scriptures and into studying Christian theology and into studying church history like never before. I also developed deep friendships and learned how the gospel can shape the, in, the entire life of a person. It wasn't just for Sunday, it's for every day. I learned how to be what we would call a gospel-centered husband and a gospel-centered father. I am not being overly dramatic when I say that our time in Omaha radically changed our lives. It was about eight months into our time there when God started to speak to me about Sacred City. It felt like the first Eight months were just personal for me. God uprooting idols in my own heart. God replacing it with truth and my identity in Christ. God doing deep stuff in my wife and I's marriage and in our parenting. And then after about eight months, God started showing me how he wanted me to bring this home to the Quad Cities. It was going to be much different than the church that we first started out with. And every time I thought about Sacred City and the church that God was calling us to plant, God kept bringing me back to our text today. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. This is where we see the church in its infancy. And what we see about the church is it's not fancy. It's not really spectacular. It's got a rather simple recipe 
But the impact, it makes a large impact in society and its impact reverberates into eternity. Today we're gonna look at that recipe and it's really got three ingredients. You've been around here for very long. You're gonna understand where we get these three ingredients from. It's gospel, community, and mission. So let's go to Acts chapter two, verse 22 this morning. If you didn't know, this is Peter. This is Peter's first sermon, post Holy Spirit. Now, if you didn't know, there's a big difference between Peter pre-Holy Spirit and Peter post-Holy Spirit, okay? Peter was a coward. Peter denied Christ multiple times, um, even just in the face of some servant girls in the night that he was persecuted. But after Peter obeyed Jesus and went and tarried for a little while and prayed and the Holy Spirit fell, Peter became an audacious, courageous gospel preacher, all right? And this is Peter's first sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Now, right away, who is this sermon to? Men of Israel, the people who had just 40-something days before crucified Jesus Christ. So Peter's first sermon is an antagonistic, in-your-face, confrontational sermon. That's his first sermon. Men of Israel. He's not just saying disciples, right? He's speaking to the culture here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the historical man, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker is a historical fact. It's a matter of the historical record. These people were living in Jesus's day. They had saw him turn water into wine. They had saw him do these things and yet they still rejected him. They thought he was a blasphemer. He goes on, this Jesus delivered up according to the, I love this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the crucifixion of Christ was not God's plan B. It had been God's A from Genesis. From the very beginning of creation, the crucifixion of the Son of God was God's plan A. No one could stop this plan. He says, but they're still accountable. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Yes, God planned it, but you did it, and you are responsible for it. But verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because Jesus Christ wasn't just a man. Jesus Christ was also the Son of God, and he lived a perfect life, and death is the consequence of sin, and Jesus never sinned, and and he was the Son of God, and so he couldn't die. He had to willingly give up his life. Verse 25, he's going to quote the Psalms here. For David says concerning him. So the Psalms in the Old Testament are about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One, like who is this Holy One, see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Here's Peter applying that Old Testament text to this New Testament context. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. In other words, the holy one David was writing about who would not go to Hades, who would not see corruption, can't be David. Because we know David died and David's bones are corrupting in the tomb and we know right where that tomb is today. So what he's saying. So therefore, David must have been speaking about another holy one who was going to come. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, David was more than a king, he was also a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So The prophecy about your holy one not seeing corruption in the grave was a prophecy that Jesus, the son of God, and from the the lineage of David, that he would be killed and yet his body would not be corrupted because he would be raised again to new life. He was not abandoned to Hades. He came back and then he ascended to the Father. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So we know from the, from the uh, ends of the Gospels, the beginning of the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was witnessed after his resurrection by over 500 witnesses. That means a good number of those witnesses were right here and they could say, who saw Jesus resurrected? And a good number of people go, yeah, we were there. I ate fish with him on the beach that day. I saw it. Craziest thing I ever did see, right? They could, there were witnesses, eyewitnesses right there. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he, Peter's saying, in one sense, the reason I'm preaching this sermon is because Jesus has went to the right hand of the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, and I'm a different man. Right? I'm a different man. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now and he is ruling and reigning until God the Father makes every single one of his enemies his footstool. And I believe after every single enemy of Christ has been made Christ's footstool, Christ will then come back and bring his kingdom. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know, I love this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, there's no doubt here, that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, both Savior and King, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that's a sermon. This Jesus whom you crucified 40 days ago. The guy that a servant girl, aren't you one of his followers? No, not me. Never heard of the guy. 40 days later, he's pointing at the religious leaders. He's pointing at Israel and saying, you killed him and you're guilty for it. This is a radical transformation in a person. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This, my friend, is called conviction of the Holy Spirit. When you sit under the preaching of the gospel, there should be a moment where your own heart gets cut. 
Everyone's heart gets cut. If your heart doesn't get cut, then it's not preaching of the gospel. It's a TED talk. It's an inspiring, you know, informational, you know, speech. But when sermons happen, conviction happens. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So Peter preaches this. You killed him. And what happens? They were cut to the heart. It's a good thing. It's a gracious thing to be cut to the heart. When we sit under the preaching of God's word, God as a surgeon is meant to cut our heart open. Why? Because he wants to take that hardness out. He wants to take those cancerous cells out. He wants to take that unbelief out. He wants to take that sin out. Beware soft, comfortable sermons. Soft words create hard hearts. And hard words often create soft hearts. Peter said to them, so, oh no, I'm sorry, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? Like, ouch, what do you want me to do? And Peter said to them, repent, which means change directions, turn around. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So you killed Christ, Turn from that, embrace Jesus Christ, and now be baptized as one of his followers in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you repent and you're baptized, you'll be forgiven of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, that God will literally move into your heart and change you from the inside out. For this promise is for you And for your children, every parent better say amen. Amen. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Every nation of the world, every people group, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic class. This is for everyone. And then he says this. He He kind of clarifies that. And for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Once again, just like he says in John, no one can come to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him. No one can come to the Son unless the Father has given that person to the Son. God must call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light for us to respond to that. And actually, this might be my favorite part of the text. And with many other words, he bore witness. So that means what it's saying there is his sermon was a whole lot longer than this. So with many other words, I will continue today. And continue to exhort them saying, listen to this. Listen to this. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. They lived in a crooked generation and we live in a crooked generation. We all must heed the words of the apostle here and save ourselves through Christ from our crooked generation. And look at verse 41. So those who received this word, see that? You have to receive the word, were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. What a move of God. Well, from this text, we learned a lot of interesting things. But one of the things that I learned was that church planting is actually planting the seed of the gospel into the soil of a culture. 
Not going, the, going with the flow of the culture and trying to come alongside the culture and get them to jump and you know, tell them everything that we share in common and we're just like you and we're, we like the same coffee shop as you and we like the same music as you and we dress the same way. Look, we're almost the same, but we have Jesus. Come, come jump on you know, this church thing with us. No, no, no. Church planting began with preaching a confrontational gospel to the culture. Preaching the gospel and planting the seed of the gospel into a culture. Trusting the sovereignty of God to bring about a thriving church. The gospel does the work. If you declare it. If you let the truth stand on its own. If you're not afraid of the opinions of people, if you're not afraid of the culture and you just let the word of God stand on its own and you just preach the word, the word does the work. So Peter preaches the gospel. The people believe it. And about 3,000 get baptized. That is an amazing move of God. But there's more. See, salvation isn't meant to just be a one-time experience between you and God. There's more to salvation, quote, than just getting saved. Our conversion brings us immediately into a community of people who live differently than the rest of the world. And it's in this community where our lives begin to change. The inward work that God did in our hearts through conversion is worked out into our everyday life as we practice gospel hospitality with other Christians. Look at the next verse. Verse 42. And they, who are they? The 3,000 who just got saved. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is where we need to kind of unpack some things because this isn't like a modern-day revival. A modern-day revival, back when I was growing up, a little bit before my time, when there were things like Billy, Billy Graham crusades and people would have these big citywide events and many thousands of people would rush to the altar and they would supposedly give their life to Christ. And then what would they do? The large majority of them would just go right back to their ordinary life. Glad I got that salvation thing figured out. Really didn't want to go to hell. But now that I'm not, whoo, thanks Jesus. Back to my regular scheduled programming. That's not what we see here. Look what happens. After true conversion, after true conversion, after a person is saved and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When Martin Luther was looking back on the Reformation that he sparked in 1517 by nailing his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, he said this, I did nothing, the Word did everything. See, the Word of God is living and active, and it, it's promised to always accomplish exactly what God wants it to accomplish. Christians, as his people, are to cherish the word of God and to be devoted to the preaching of the word. And devoted doesn't mean once a year, twice a year, five times a year, once a month. That's not being devoted. This is why at Sacred City, we preach through entire books of the Bible verse by verse. 
See, my confidence in preaching does not come from my abilities, but rather from the word of God itself. So this past year, we finished up our study in Nehemiah. We spent 12 weeks in the first three chapters of Genesis studying our origins. And then we preached through the first 12 chapters of the book of John before spending the last four weeks of the year in Advent. It's interesting because these books of the Bible that we have studied together have shaped our church in profound ways for the better. We never would have started a building campaign if we didn't study Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra taught us, hey, you gotta, you gotta build a church before you can renew the city. Nehemiah said, it's gonna be a battle. There's gonna be a lot of things. There's gonna be a lot of fighting going on. You gotta have a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. It's gonna take everybody. You've gotta still be devoted to the word. It's gonna take a lot of sacrifice. You're gonna have to give sacrificially to it. And the amount of people who have now came to our church and came to faith and been baptized has been a direct result of those series and then our time in John. Now, another way that we have tried to provide biblical teaching to our church is through our podcasts. Our Sacred City Life podcast, we post two episodes a week, had over 18,000 streams this past year. That's a lot, I can't, I don't know how you can stand listening to me that long, that's for sure. <laughs> Most of that was Angie, actually, so <laughs> just keeps us on repeat so that we, our stats go up. <laughs> Thanks for that, Angie, appreciate it. Every iPad in the house just playing it constantly. <laughs> yeah. No. <clears throat> Joel also started a great new podcast this year called Life in the Liturgy that is meant to help prep our hearts to worship God richly on Sunday mornings and take us deeper into our appreciation of, and understanding of the hymns we sing. Listen, when God brings us into his family, he makes us a disciple, which is another word we call around here a learner. Someone who strives to constantly be learning and growing more in their knowledge of God. If you want to be a more devoted learner of God's word this year, I hope that you would take advantage of these resources that we have provided for you and also consider doing Porterbrook Quad Cities this coming fall. Porterbrook Quad Cities is our theological training program meant to equip everyday people to live as gospel-centered Christians in the midst of their chaotic and busy life. We took a break this past year to complete the building, but plan on firing it back up even better in 2024. We hope that you want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and devoted to the word. That means, hey, Pick a daily reading plan. Read your Bible more this year than you did last year. Read more books this year than you did. Read better books this year than you read last year. Leaders and disciples are readers. We're, Christians are meant to be called people of the book. He goes on in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the fellowship. Now, it's easy for us to blow past this word here. Oh, they had donuts. Cool. They had donuts after church, right? Well, no. The Greek word there is koinonia. And it means the act of sharing the activities of an intimate group. The act of sharing the activities of an intimate group. We call this 
life on life discipleship done with a group of people that know you and you know them. It's much more than just coming to a Sunday morning. It's meant to be a place where you can be known and you can know others, where they know your struggles and you know theirs, where you can help them bear burdens and they can help you carry the burdens that the Lord sends to you. Right? When one person suffers, they suffer together. If you go through the New Testament, you're going to find dozens of scriptures that command Christians and how they are to relate to one another. Those scriptures don't even make sense when it comes to the Sunday gathering. Right? Because I don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. Right? We barely see each other. We come in. We say hi. We drink a cup of coffee. Catch up a little bit. Worship God. And then we go out. Koinonia is much different and deeper than the fellowship we experience here on Sunday morning. Is this a part of it? Absolutely. Here's the kind of stuff this koinonia does together. Fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So does that, that's, when it says breaking of the bread, it's specifically here talking about communion, the Lord's Supper, and it says the prayers. The prayers, they would pray liturgical prayers. Their prayers were not mainly just whatever came to their mind. That's why it says the prayers. What were the prayers? Primarily the Psalms. They prayed the Psalms together. So when they gathered together, they were to be devoted to the scriptures, devoted to the Psalms, devoted, devoted to the Lord's Supper, and devoted to one another, and devoted to the apostles' teaching. But then he goes on. And awe came upon every soul. Awe. What is God doing? Look who, look who just came through the door. That's so-and-so's brother. You know what he was doing last year. Whoa. Right? God was doing things in their city, in their midst. And as they stayed faithful to the word and stayed faithful to the sacraments and stayed faithful to one another, God was bringing awe upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was healing people in their midst like he's done in our own church this past year. Verse 44. And all who believed, look, were together and had all things in common. Now this is where things break down for us in the modern church. Like most churches in the New Testament age, most scholars believe there were around 80 people. There were very small churches spread around all kind of different towns. Why? They didn't have a lot of big gathering spaces like we have today. They were under threat of persecution, all kinds of different things. So they were very small. So more than likely, you, you can get to know everybody with, with 80 or less people there. Right? So it's going to feel more like family. We're going to say around here, it's going to feel more like missional community. But as God continues to add to numbers and a church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's important that they begin to break down into smaller sizes so that they can share all things in common with one another. When somebody gets sick, somebody makes the meals. Right? When somebody struggles with a bill and they can't pay it, somebody steps in and helps. This is the type of community the church is supposed to be. They had all things in common. Look, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In other words, they were devoted to this group of people more than anybody else. And if they had been really successful in business and they had got a really cushy house and they'd got some extra things, they were willing to sell some of those things to meet the needs, the practical needs of the people in their community. 
This is a radical generosity. This is one of the things that the culture looked at and knew these people are different. It's been said by one uh, New Testament historian, a a non-Christian New Testament historian, that back in the day, that that culture was very liberal with their bodies and very conservative with their money. In other words, they slept around and were promiscuous, but they were very tight with their money. And the Christian church was the exact opposite. They were very conservative in their sexuality and their relationship, sharing sex with only their spouse, but they were very liberal in the dispersion of their goods. And this is one of the things that they were different from the culture, and it's one of the things that made Christianity attractive to that first century world. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. And look, and day by day, so this is a daily thing, not just a weekly thing, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, being saved, not just those who were saved, those who were being saved. We get saved from the consequences of sin. We are made new and then we are brought into a process called sanctification where God is continually saving us from the presence and the power of sin. He does that inside of a smaller group of people. See, this is the biblical concept of church. We see gospel Community and mission. God's adding to their numbers day by day as they were inviting people into their homes to break bread with them. This is, you know, the church is not a building. It is a gospel-centered people living in community and on mission for the glory of God. As we see, it's not that spectacular. It's relatively normal. Biblical teaching, fellowship, Food, sacraments, prayer, giving, praising God, and leading others to come and love our gracious God. That's what a real church looks like. A gospel-centered family on the mission of God, learning to submit all areas of their life to his lordship. We have new lives under a new king. So this is why we chose to structure Sacred City around these things we call missional communities. They're not small groups. Small groups tend to get insular and only worry about those that are in the group. We want to be a missional community. Do we want to care for one another? Yes. The world will know us by our love for one another, the scriptures say. But we also want to be on mission to those outside the group and invite them in to learn to know our loving Heavenly Father. So these communities are 10 to 30 people who gather together weekly around the gospel. They learn together, they eat together, they pray together, they celebrate together, share life together, and live on mission together. Then on Sundays, all of our missional communities gather together to worship God and have our souls formed through the liturgy, the preaching of the word, the prayers, and the taking of the Lord's Supper. Well, 12 and a half years ago, my family moved back to the Quad Cities to kind of try this, (laughs) this idea of a gospel-centered missional church. And when we first started, listen, this is what I was committed to. I was committed to have a tiny church in my home the rest of my life. That's what I was committed to. This This is a small church, you know, all these 
3,000 people broke out into homes. All right, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to start teaching, start preaching, start doing our things in our homes so we can live together as a family. Well, when we first started, we had that one missional community in my living room but then, and no Sunday gathering. And then we, people started coming and Lord had added to our numbers so then we multiplied and went to two missional communities and then we started a closed Sunday night gathering which everybody thought was the weirdest thing in the world. Hey, can we come to your church? No, you can't actually. It's just for our members, like our Sunday night because I wanted to get this DNA into our members before we just started inviting people because we weren't like, Anything else. We weren't like just a show in town. We were trying to teach people how to live in community on fam- and, and be a family. Well then, not long after that, our missional community multiplied again. We went to three MCs. And on January 1st of 2012, six months after moving back to the Quad Cities and starting a missional community, we officially launched our public Sunday gathering. It was in the junior theater, right where we came from. We had 69 adults and 20 kids in attendance. Now, just to put it in perspective, our average Sunday attendance uh, last year was about 335 uh, before moving into the new building, and it has been 443 since we've moved in here, all with one service. If you, for those math people out there, that's a 33% increase over last year, and we had 520 people worshiping with us on Easter. God has continued to bless and build this church. And let us not forget I know I remind you all the time that we are in America's 14th least churched city. And we are in the least churched city in Iowa. And God continues to push back darkness among us. When we we planted Sacred City, we were told over and over that missional communities don't work in the Midwest. Pastors still tell me that missional communities don't work because our people and our culture are just too busy. But we don't do them because they work. We do them because that's what Acts 2 says the church should look like. We do them because that's how Jesus made disciples. Jesus had a small koinonia that he lived in community and on mission with that went everywhere he went. The only way to make disciples is in community and on mission like Jesus. We don't get to reinvent discipleship. It's not a classroom. It's not a booklet. It's not something you can take home and do by yourself. Discipleship happens the way Jesus made disciples, and that's with a group of people in close proximity of one another on mission together. But it should be no surprise to anyone that also when you obey God, it works. (laughs) And here's the reality. Our culture is getting darker More twisted, we're reverting back really to pagan days. It's going to be a lot, our culture is getting more and more like the days of the first century right here. And our culture is getting more set against Christ and his church by the day. And listen, this year, with the presidential election coming up, I have a feeling that this year is going to make 2020 look like a walk in the park. And if you don't have a koinonia, if you don't have a missional community that can encourage you and strengthen you and help you follow Jesus, it is highly likely that you won't weather the coming cultural storm. Over the past 12 years, we have grown to a church of 15 missional communities with two congregations, Pastor Sam leading Sacred City Moline, 
But numerical growth isn't our only goal. Our goal, our primary goal is to make disciples. We want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to renew our cities through the multiplication of missional communities into every neighborhood in the Quad Cities. We estimate that our missional communities have provided more than 300 meals to those in need over the, and over 13,000 man hours serving our city this past year. At a mere $15 an hour, that's over $200,000 worth of free labor given to the least of these in our city. We haven't just talked about renewing our city. We've also been working really hard at it. On top of that, Pastor Alex and some of our church members launched New City Classical Academy, a new Christian school that currently meets here in our building throughout the week to equip students to shape the culture around them through wise and victorious Christian living. This has been an outstanding year for our church. We rallied together and gave sacrificially to purchase and remodel this building to create a strategic base for future gospel ministry where we could all worship God together under one roof, reach our neighbors for Christ, and train up the next generation to renew our city for God's glory. We have given over $232,000 this year to our building campaign, or last year. We spent we spent 617000 in the remodel of this building. And in spite of that, we still gave away over $48,000 towards planting new churches around the world. 21000 of that was to church planting in Kenya through Fishers of Men Ministries. This year, we added 47 new covenant members, the most we've ever had in one year. We've baptized 46 souls into Christ Church which again is the most we've ever had in one year. And our Sacred City Youth has doubled in size and we hired Scott as a director of operations. Kevin Knorr began as our biblical counselor and we brought on Kurt Schoenhoff as a full-time director of media. So what's next for us? Well, first, we hope to get that smell in the men's bathroom figured out. <laughs> Listen, we've tried, all right? Multiple plumbers, we've tried. We don't know what's up, all right? No, all joking aside, listen, if I, have, if I have learned anything over the past year is that God wants us to expect great things from him, ask great things of him in prayer, and attempt great things for him in his kingdom. The light was made to push back the darkness. And God has called us to be a city on a hill to light up the quad cities with the hope of the gospel. So here's six things quickly as I close. One, we have nine guys in the elder development process currently. We are assessing four of them for the office of elder and pastor this month. By God's grace, we'll be installing some elders uh, really soon. Number two, you already saw it this morning, we're hosting a marriage conference at the end of February and are bringing in a friend of mine, pastor and author Michael Clary from Ohio to help us strengthen our marriages and families. Families are important. Marriage is important. Number three, I've already mentioned that we are relaunching Porterbrook to help those who have not been through it to really grow in their discipleship this year, to really take an active part in their discipleship and commit to something to be a part of that can hold them accountable to grow. Fourth, we're going to be, we're launching a women's discipleship weekend and are planning to have a men's or women's event every quarter 
in 2024. Fifth, as the Lord continues to add to our numbers, it's our hope that we multiply at least three new missional communities this year to help us facilitate that growth. If you're not a part of a missional community, please join a missional community. you, You won't be disappointed. Obedience to Jesus, man, obedience to Jesus is what he's calling you to do. Be a part of him. It takes a sacrifice. It's not easy, but it's the life of a Christian. Sixth, lastly, to help us think through a Christian's role when it comes to understanding politics and to help us understand and develop a better um, understanding of our own Christian history in our own country, I've been in contact with the author and history scholar, Glenn Sunshine, and hope to have him in to host a small conference for our church, preferably sometime before November. (laughs) Things are going to get crazy this year and we hope to give our church the tools to remain sane and hopeful in the midst of the chaos that will no doubtably, no doubtably arise this year. Now listen, that's just a smattering of our current plans and goals for 2024. I've begun a new process to create a five-year strategic plan for our church and plan to unveil that as it develops and things come into focus for us. Again, here is the statement that I feel like the Lord is speaking to me about, all right? Here's the statement that we're to to believe in 2024. Expect great things from God. Ask great things of God and attempt great things for God. I pray that we would be known for that in 2024. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, you know every heart and every mind that's in this building this morning. If there's any here that don't know you, I pray that they would turn from their life of sin and they would put their faith in their one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a a perfect life for them, who died a substitutionary death in their place, who rose again to give them forgiveness and new life and a new family, and that you would do that in the lives of your people as they take Jesus by faith. And for those of us who have already believed, Father, would you help us All of us are tempted to skip missional community. All of us are tempted to get lax in our commitment to the church. All of us are are tempted to backslide when it comes to our financial giving and, and the sacrifices that you require us to make for one another. Would you renew a right spirit in us? Would you bring conviction to our own heart? Would you do this for your glory and our joy? Father, I'm thankful that you call repentant believers to yourself and you don't just you know, call us in for salvation, but you call us in to sup with us, to eat with us, that you prepare a table for us this morning. And Jesus, you meet it, you meet us here in it. So Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Jesus, we commit these to you and we ask your blessing upon them. Feed us now by faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.